What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on this week? Well, what the hell is going on is we're entering the fourth week of the war in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are still holding on, not only holding on, they're doing really well. They've actually had some advances and then taken back some territory from the Russians. So that's good news. And we just got back, you and I, from the AEI World Forum in Sea Island, which is AEI's premier annual conference. And it's an off-the-record meeting and lots of fascinating people come. And you ran probably what I would consider the best plenary session of any world forum I've ever attended. So kudos to you. But it was fascinating, not just because of your brilliance, but because of the brilliance of some of the people you brought together for it. And one of those was Matt Pottinger, who was the former deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration, who made a really fascinating intervention about how we're at the start of a new Cold War. And so we reached out to Matt and said, hey, we know this is off the record, but would you like to come on the podcast and share your thoughts with our audience? And he said, absolutely. And so we've got him on the podcast today. So I'm a huge fan of Matt's, and he did a wonderful job, and I'm really happy that we're able to share it with our listeners. The reality is that when bad things happen in the world, you want to sort of define them down. You want to say, okay, what's happening in Ukraine is terrible. We feel really badly about it, but it doesn't touch on Poland or it doesn't touch on NATO. You hope that it doesn't give signals to China to attack Taiwan. And what I think is becoming increasingly clear is that this is a much scarier time than we want to admit. I'll just sort of add a tiny, really personal perspective. One of the things that is hard, especially for those of us who love and study history, is to imagine to yourself that for most people, when some of the most cataclysmic events were going on, the Holocaust, you know, when nuclear weapons were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, The reality is that weirdly, of course, for the vast mass of the world, life goes on. You still went out for your morning coffee. You still went to work that day. You still did all of the things that are normal. And I think for those of us, especially who are listening to this, our lives go on. But there are dangerous things happening, and we haven't spent enough time focusing on them. Well, if you think about it, you and I, we grew up during the Cold War or in the later years of the Cold War. And so we lived when we were college students and high school students with the fear of a nuclear attack. We knew that at any moment the Soviet arsenal was aimed at us and our arsenal was aimed at them. And I remember having nightmares about it as a kid. And then the Cold War ended peacefully without a shot being fired. Communism collapsed in Eastern Europe. Russia no longer seemed to become a threat. And for three decades, we've been living with the idea that yeah, there are threats forming and we had terrorism and China's rising, but we've basically been living in this Pax Americana, this unipolar moment where no one could really threaten us. Little conflicts would break out here and there, but we couldn't imagine the possibility of a cataclysmic global war ever, certainly one involving the United States ever coming about. And we're starting to wake up. Francis Fukuyama said it was the end of history. Well, we're waking up from the dream of the end of history. History is returning. And it's scary. And we need really good analysis to understand and sort of sober analysis that this could go really badly. (laughs) 
I'm sure lots of people thought that the invasion of the Sudetenland was just a, uh, a minor incursion, to use a phrase that someone used recently, and it wasn't. And this invasion of Ukraine might not be just a minor incursion. It could have cataclysmic consequences beyond Ukraine. So you and I do talk an awful lot about World War II analogies, and that's part of the generation that we come from. This is what I studied was the run-up to World War II. And yet I never had known that the Munich Accords that handed over the Sudetenland to Hitler actually had a territorial guarantee for the rest of Czechoslovakia. In other words, we, the United Kingdom, France, and others, we will let Hitler take over this land, but we're not going to tolerate anything further. And they provided territorial guarantees to Czechoslovakia, which they didn't honor. It does sound an awful lot like the guarantees that were provided to Ukraine when Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. We promised them that we would guarantee their territorial integrity if only they were willing to give up these nuclear weapons from the Soviet era. And of course, we have not honored that agreement. And where did it all end? I mean, we know where World War II ended. We don't yet know where this battle in Ukraine ends. But I do think that the similarities are too great to ignore. And that's why we have to win. (laughs) I mean, Putin has to lose in Ukraine. I started out the podcast by saying we're in the fourth week of war in Ukraine. No one thought this would get to four weeks. (laughs) You know, Putin was supposed to be in Kiev by the third day. And the Ukrainians have held out. I don't think we have a strategy to win the war in Ukraine. So first of all, there's just been a series of cataclysmic failures of strategic analysis going on here. You had first the entire world, including the Biden administration, up until briefly before it started, no one thought Putin would actually do it. If we knew then what we know now, the smart thing would have been to put the sanctions on before the war started, to arm the Ukrainians before the war started, to send the MiGs before the war started to send the stingers before the war started, right? To deter Putin from taking the action. But no one thought he would do it. As Roddick said, Roddick Sikorsky, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, said the world thought it was too insane that he wouldn't do it, what he did, but he did do it. And then the strategic analysis was that, well, he's done it now and the Ukrainians are screwed. Because as Fred Kagan said on the podcast, if you look on paper, the force-on-force analysis, there's no way the Ukrainians could hold out. There's no way that they could prevent the taking of Kiev. And here we are in the fourth week, and they've done it. The Russian military has not performed well. The Ukrainians have performed spectacularly defending their own country. And so we sent over some weapons to help them defend themselves so we could say that we helped them. But no one thought that they could actually do it. And now, three and a half weeks into the conflict, President Biden announces $800 million in aid to the Ukrainians, more Stinger missiles, these new switchblade drones, other weapons. All of that could have been sent three weeks ago. None of that required authorization from Congress. Congress simply funded the backfilling of that equipment, buying it back, what we were sending from our existing arsenal to the Ukrainians. Why didn't we send that stuff earlier? Why didn't we send that in the first weeks of the war? There's no reason we had to wait for three weeks. And so we haven't made the strategic shift here in the country to the idea that we actually have to defeat Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. Not with American troops, not with American planes, but help the Ukrainians defeat Putin and stop this aggression and force him to come to a peace deal that is favorable to the Ukrainians because the consequences, one, is possible now, which nobody thought, and two, the consequences, if he doesn't, are catastrophic because it'll send a lesson to other countries around the world that you can get away with this. So I don't think we have a strategy to win right now. Look, I agree with you entirely. One of the things 
A, we don't have a strategy to win, but B, I think we just are unable to connect the dots. And this is really why you and I want to talk about Well, but I mean, really, Mark, you've talked about how we haven't delivered enough to the Ukrainians in advance because we were unable to anticipate that they might be able to stand up to Moscow. Well, of course, the answer is we were planning on providing advisors to the Zelensky government in December and the White House vetoed it. The White House was always worried about provoking the Russians. And I think Mm -hmm. here again, this is a failure to understand what the implications are. So five months ago, six months ago, you and I spent a lot of time talking about Afghanistan. Now, if you say Afghanistan in the news, you get a sort of a quizzical expression because everybody's moved on. And what people fail to understand is, no, there is actually a line from Afghanistan to Ukraine. There's a line from Ukraine and Moscow to Beijing. And there's a line from Beijing to Taipei. And we need to understand that the reason, as you really nicely said, we need to win here. We need our allies to win here, not just because the Ukrainians really are inspiring. And I say that with all humility. They really are inspiring the world, much more because Ukraine needs to win because other dictators need to believe that their path to victory is not clear. I want Xi Jinping to understand that if he decides that Taiwan is the right move for him in the coming six months, he actually has to have second thoughts about it. And that's where I think that this administration and many others are not making the point clear enough. We got to stop worrying about provoking Beijing, just like we were overly worried about provoking Russia. We have to learn the lessons of our mistakes in Ukraine and apply them to Taiwan to deter and prevent an invasion, or at least to make sure that the Taiwanese are ready if an invasion does occur. When Roddick told us the other day that he read that 7,000-page manifesto in July that Putin had written laying out his case for the invasion of Ukraine, I went and got the manifesto and read it, and it is unbelievable. It laid out a case stretching back a thousand years that the Ukrainians and Russians are one people. They're all descendants of ancient Rus that was bound together by common language, culture, and religion. He railed against the Bolsheviks for organizing the USSR as a federation of equal republics, which he said was a time bomb that exploded when the Soviet Union collapsed, that unleashed a parade of sovereignties that left the Ukrainian people abroad overnight, taken away from the historical motherland. And he said, one fact is clear, Russia was robbed. If you read that, And you read the case that he talks about how Ukraine has been taken over by radicals and Nazis who are working with the United States and the EU to turn it into a springboard against Russia. It was absolutely clear what he intended to do. And then I went and looked at what Xi Jinping has said. And in a 2019 speech, Xi Jinping declared, this is a quote. And by the way, when we get to our discussion with Matt, he points out that a lot of China's speeches, the ones that are delivered in Chinese, don't actually get translated into English. This is a speech that he gave on the anniversary of the communique to Taiwan which had been given many years ago by the Chinese regime. There's no translation available online. There's a video, only a video that has translation underneath, but you literally can't get a document that quotes this. In that speech, he declared, quote, we should not allow this problem to be passed down from one generation to the next. And he said that while he wanted peaceful reunification, quote, we make no promise to renounce the use of force and reserve the option of taking all necessary means to forcibly reunify Taiwan. So this is a speech that Xi Jinping gave, laying out his intentions on Taiwan that nobody has read from beginning to end in English except some China scholars. And last July, when Putin was giving his manifesto, he delivered a speech where he promised to take resolute action to utterly defeat any attempt toward Taiwan independence. She has been just as clear about Taiwan 
as Putin has been about Ukraine. And so if we fail to anticipate Ukraine, maybe we ought to take the words of our adversary seriously this time. Maybe we ought to anticipate that he's looking at this and we don't know whether it's bought us a little bit more time where he's going to pause because he wants to make sure that he's not going to get into the same mess as the Russians did in Ukraine. Or maybe he's looking and saying, hey, Americans don't have a two war capability. And so this is the perfect time to go. We don't know the answer to that. But we need to take it seriously that China intends to reunify Taiwan forcibly if they won't do it voluntarily. Well, and they're not going to do it voluntarily. So this is the main reason we wanted to talk to Matt. For folks who haven't seen, he did a terrific interview that was in Saturday's Wall Street Journal. We'll link it in the transcript. But for those of you who don't know Matt Pottinger, he's a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's chairman of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's China program. He served in the White House both as a senior Asia staffer, but also finally as a deputy national security advisor. And as one of the authors of Trump administration national security strategy, he was a writer for the Wall Street Journal. He was a writer for Reuters. And before that, he was a U.S. Marine who did three combat deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan. I really like it when we can have people like this on because they represent the full spectrum of everything you can do in American politics that's good. And Matt is exactly that guy, smart and service and really, I think, changed American policy fundamentally in ways that people will thank him for in the years to come. Here's our interview. Well, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you both. We were all uh, together at the AI World Forum recently, which is an off-the-record event, and you were kind enough to speak in the plenary, and you had some fascinating comments, and you kindly agreed to come on the podcast and share them with our listeners. So let me just start by asking you about where we are right now in what you described as the start of a new Cold War. Yeah. So this term Cold War is, for some people, contentious. It's interesting. A lot of people, understandably, have wanted to avoid admitting that we're really in some kind of a Cold War construct again, except with the roles of Russia and China reversed, right? With China really as sort of the giant power and the Russians in the junior partner role. But a Cold War is... It's a long-term strategic competition, right? It's a competition between nuclear-armed great powers for whom military power is extremely important. And of course, there's a risk of a head-on confrontation militarily between the nuclear-armed great powers. But both sides in the first Cold War, as in the second, have an interest in trying to constrain the competition to non-military decisive means. So really competing in terms of technology and economic might ideological and informational power. And so those are similarities, right? No model's really perfect. You've got differences between Cold War I and Cold War II. Neil Ferguson, the historian, has pointed out that there were big differences between World War I and World War II as well, but the similarities <laughs> really overshadow the differences. Why get wrapped up in the differences when there's explanatory and predictive value, explanatory and predictive power in applying the Cold War framework. And that can be helpful to policymakers in the West. And when I say the West, I'm using the term non-geographically. So you sort of get the idea that I'm using the term really as a set of values and institutions to define the West. So there's value 
in using a Cold War framework to understand for business purposes, for policymaking, for just everyday citizens to be able to be informed and to have a sense for where things are headed in the world, what some of the big trends are in the world. There's value in applying this model. So, Matt, you talk about this as a new Cold War. You talk about the battle between the Russians, the Chinese, and us. I think what a lot of people are asking themselves is, okay, if Ukraine really isn't the beginning, the beginning is the ratcheting up in tension between the United States and China, even before the Trump administration, what I ask myself really is, what does this Cold War look like for Americans? I mean, does it look like endless stalemate battles between Russia and its neighbors? Does it look like China threatening Taiwan? What does the world ahead look like for us? Yeah, well, it certainly includes both of the things you mentioned. And just as with the Korean War in 1950, the Cold War had really started the day that World War II ended, but a lot of people in the West were understandably reluctant to see things that way. So you had people like Winston Churchill and George Kennan who were trying to warn us. Winston Churchill, when he gave his speech in Missouri, the famous Iron Curtain speech in 1946, if you listen to how he described Joseph Stalin, he was actually quite complimentary. And that was an act of persuasive writing by Churchill. He was trying to ease people into the idea that we're in a Cold War by conceding that Stalin had been a really important ally in World War II. And the Russians took the brunt of Hitler's Wehrmacht punishment. It's hard to imagine how we would have won the way that we did as quickly as we did without the role that the Russians played in absorbing Hitler's might. But nonetheless, he goes on to describe the nature of the Soviet system as an implacable threat to free and open societies. And so he makes that case. George Kennan in his long telegram makes an amazing case about the nature of the Soviet system and why it isn't going to be satisfied. It's not going to reach an equilibrium point on its own. We have to impose an equilibrium point or it'll just keep eating and eating and eating. And it took several more years for those ideas to really grip the consciousness of free people. And that was with the beginning of the Korean War in 1950. In the Korean War, you have the opposite, the role switch again between Russia and China. Stalin had uh, given a green light for Kim Il-sung to invade South Korea. He noticed that the West had clearly drawn South Korea outside of our defensive perimeter. And then Mao sent his young boys to the slaughter, including his own son, I would add, who died in the Korean War. While Stalin provided all sorts of material support, logistical support, pilots who records later boasted of having shot down, Russian pilots boasted of having shot down 400 American and other allied aircraft in that war while they were flying in MiGs that were marked as Chinese or uh, North Korean MiGs. And of course, in all their public statements, they steadfastly denied that they had anything to do with what was going on in the peninsula. It's identical to what's playing out now with China. China is at least on the verge of providing material, military, and financial support. It's clear that this is something that has caught the sharp attention of President Biden and the West. President Biden had a long phone conversation with Xi Jinping to warn the Chinese leader that if China decides to support Russia's war effort more than it already is, in other words, to provide material support, not just ideological propaganda and international UN type support, which China is already providing, that's going to be a tipping point, a potential rupture point, really, in relations between China and the West. 
So Matt, I want to drill down on Taiwan in a moment. But before we get to that, it seems almost as if a new Cold War would be the more desirable outcome. A lot of people are worried about World War III right now breaking out. And it seems like we've gone through this three decades of living in a dream where, you know, all of a sudden war was unthinkable. And now it's reared its ugly head. You quoted Churchill. Churchill in 1923 wrote a book called The World Crisis, and he summed up the prevailing attitude at the start of the 20th century. He said that prevailing attitude was that war is too foolish, too fantastic to be thought of in the 20th century. Civilization has climbed above such perils. The independence of nations in trade and traffic, the sense of public law, the Hague Convention, liberal principles, high finance, Christian charity, common sense have all rendered such nightmares impossible. And then he asked, are you quite sure? It would be a pity to be wrong. And of course, the 20th century (laughs) was the bloodiest century in human history. Could we be on the cusp of an even bloodier century coming up now? It's possible. I told a friend the other day, we're in a Cold War if we're lucky. Yeah. I had a conversation with one of my former colleagues who actually thinks we're closer to something more like what he called World War II 2.0 than we are to uh, Cold War 2.0. It's very much in our interest to try to prevent the direct military conflict from spilling over into a direct confrontation between NATO allies or our treaty allies in Asia and Russia or China. But it's certainly possible. And that's why we need to be prepared for that. We've got a better chance of deterring a military conflict if we do what Winston Churchill taught us time and again, as late as the late 1900s, or rather late 19th century, in the late 1800s, he was writing about how important it is for the West to maintain its technological edge. He said that after coming off of campaigns in North Africa. So we need to spend a heck of a lot more money than we are spending, and we need to spend the money a lot more wisely than we're spending it on our military deterrent. This technological edge issue really has incredible application when it comes to China. When we look at the performance of the Russian military, we don't think to ourselves, hmm, they're doing really great against the old lady with the pickle jar in Ukraine. They're not. But the Chinese have spent the last decades stealing technology from us, developing their own technology, applying it, spending untold billions on their military. I mean, they are a formidable enemy. When I think about that, and I think about that in conjunction with what they may do and what Xi Jinping has been threatening to do on Taiwan, I ask myself the same question that you just posed, which is, will this Cold War be a hot war? I mean, what do you think? If we are to apply a Cold War model, the logic of that model instructs us to be a lot more serious than we've been about trying to prevent Beijing from acquiring technologies that can be used not only for commercial, but also military advantage. And we've, in sort of a piecemeal way, kind of hacked at it for decades, but it's really been a battle that we've been losing. And so we've got to redouble those efforts. I think that a Cold War in the current era doesn't require necessarily a wholesale decoupling between our societies, but it does mean doing far, far more than we are to prevent Beijing from acquiring those dual-use technologies, which they've had a rather easy time acquiring through cyber theft, through infiltration of our laboratories. And so I do think that that's a really key part of it. Okay, so let me follow up with the cable TV question. Does Xi Jinping look at what Russia is doing in Ukraine, listen to the protestations of the United States and NATO that we're not going to have a no-fly zone, we're not going to get involved, and say to himself, hmm, this looks like a good moment for me? Or does he worry that we are not going to tolerate another predation on the sort of Westphalian system, the post-World War II system of sovereign countries? 
Well, it's obvious that both Putin and Xi Jinping badly miscalculated the Western response to the war that Putin launched and which Beijing is underwriting in Europe, in Ukraine. They both thought it would be easier, no doubt, than the fight has been, and thought that European and transatlantic solidarity would not measure up to what it has measured up to. So that can be helpful if we follow up and try to help Ukraine deliver a decisive victory. I don't think it's to our advantage, and it's certainly not something that we want to see the Ukrainian people go through to have sort of a frozen conflict, right? Or an outcome similar to the outcome that we saw on the Korean Peninsula, where the place just gets torn down and ends with a stalemate. I think one of the lessons of the Korean War is that we want to deliver a decisive victory. That doesn't mean that U.S. troops should be firing shots at Russian troops, but what it means is helping Ukraine see this thing through in a way that is really decisive. And it sends a message about some of the other fantasies or designs that uh, that those two leaders, that the Ayatollah has, that Beijing has toward Taiwan. I think it's quite important that we help Ukraine deliver decisive victory. It seems to me like we've miscalculated a number of times in Ukraine, because first of all, no one thought that he would actually do it. That's why we didn't arm Ukraine to the teeth beforehand or impose sanctions beforehand, because Biden thought that would be provocative and it might actually provoke him to do something. So we're in the provocative phase. And then no one thought the Ukrainians could hold out. So we gave them some weapons. But, you know, Biden just announced this $800 million cash of weapons. He could have given those to the Ukrainians three weeks ago. We haven't been fighting to win in Ukraine. We weren't fighting to deter, we weren't preparing to deter, and then we haven't been fighting to win. What do we need to do if a victory for Ukraine is so important to the broader geopolitical Cold War that you're describing? What do we need to be doing differently right now? Yeah. Why not victory, right? (laughs) I mean, why not just aim to win? And I would be doing a couple of things. One is that even as we rush munitions and supplies to Ukraine, And I think we should be doing everything possible to facilitate the arsenals of other NATO members get front-loaded into this fight, right? We should be doing the same thing for Taiwan right now. There was a rumor of a KGB leak, or you know, an FSB rather, leak that they believed that Beijing was going to move on Taiwan later this year, which is conceivable. It is conceivable. So we're already in the window of danger for Taiwan. So why not ensure that we are cranking out munitions so that we show that we are able, that Taiwan is able, just as we want to show and demonstrate that our European friends are able to sustain a long-term costly fight for Putin and for Xi Jinping alike, if she takes such a fateful step as invading Taiwan. We had Radek Sikorsky on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things he said was he knew in July that Putin was going to invade. After he read that 7,000-word manifesto that he published on the Russian presidential website, which he had every Russian soldier read, laying out the case for why Ukraine and Russia were the same people, that Ukraine had been stolen from Russia, that the West was using it as a springboard for Russia. He said as soon as they published that, he knew that Putin was going in. You speak Mandarin. You read Xi Jinping's speeches in Mandarin, the ones that are directed to the Chinese, not to the outside world. Even in the stuff that he said publicly that's available to us, he said they don't renounce the use of force, that Taiwan cannot be passed from one generation to the next. It has to be solved during this generation. Has she been as clear as Putin in terms of his intentions toward Taiwan? And do we take a risk of not taking his word seriously? A lot of Xi Jinping's speeches have leaked over the years, some important portions of some of his most important speeches. 
Other speeches, some of his most aggressive speeches are kept secret for a time, but then dribbled out in Chinese uh, theoretical journals in Chinese language only after the news cycle has sort of moved on. So you end up with this paradox, this very unfortunate situation where you have Western news outlets that are falling over themselves to cover Xi Jinping's address to the World Economic Forum in Davos, but completely miss far more important speeches as one example, the speech that Xi Jinping gave in November of last year to the Sixth Plenum, where he reviewed 100 years of Chinese Communist Party history. People wrote stories about the Sixth Plenum, but Xi's speech was kept secret for a few months. And so when they finally did release that speech in Chinese language on a holiday, it was on New Year's Day, January 1st, no one picked it up. I think governments missed it. I know the press missed it completely. And I still haven't seen any writing about that speech. But the speech is pregnant with intention and with the worldview that Xi Jinping has honed in his 10 years in power and which he was honing before he came to power. And he talks about the Korean War at length. The speech is profoundly anti-American, just like the 5,000-word communique that Xi and Putin signed on the 4th of February mentions the United States in a very negative light about a half a dozen times. He quotes Mao throughout the speech at length. He quotes Mao's foresight and bravery in launching the so-called Chinese volunteers to go fight the United States on the Korean Peninsula, along with our UN allies who are fighting alongside of us. He talks about the idea, quoting Mao, that we should have the courage to destroy our country internally in order to rebuild it anew. To ruin the country is the word he uses. In other words, to ruin China in order to rebuild it anew, that we shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't be afraid of throwing one punch now in order to avoid a hundred punches later. That's another Mao quote that she quotes in that speech. And that reads to my ears like an argument for preemptive combat. So yeah, I think if you look at the canon, <laughs> this voluble canon of speeches that she has given over the uh, decades. Some of those speeches were kept secret for years, but nonetheless, they tell a very consistent story about his intention to win an ideological conflict against the West and against the United States specifically. Matt, you make me very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to you describe this, what Xi Jinping is talking about is by no standard a Cold War and by no standard an offer to allow us more time with which to bolster our own defenses, potentially undermine his, to decouple economically, to somehow undermine the Chinese economy. What it sounds like we're faced with is an admittedly not terribly competent, but nonetheless very dangerous leader in Russia. We don't know how competent the Chinese military is, but those are very, very dangerous speeches. None of this sounds like Cold War to me. Am I misreading? Is he just being bellicose for another purpose? Well, I think he's gearing up to invade Taiwan. I do. I think that we're in that window of danger now and that he is someone who talks a lot about taking decisive steps and not waiting. So he's someone who was very patient when it came to building his own power. He was very patient in cultivating the relationships he needed to cultivate to ultimately climb the ladder to the pinnacle of power in China. He's not in a patient mode anymore. The patient time is now past. If we were to believe what he's saying when he's speaking 
in his own language to his own party leadership. So what that tells me is that we need our business leaders to pay very, very close attention to the possibility that we are going to be in a head-on conflict or in a series of proxy fights, proxy wars launched not by us. Remember, just like the first Cold War, we didn't pick this one. (laughs) We didn't start it, okay? This was started by Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and some of their supporting role players like the Ayatollah, to a lesser extent, Kim Jong-un in Korea. But we are now facing an actual war in Europe that is being underwritten by Xi Jinping <laughs> and prosecuted by Vladimir Putin. If that's not a wake-up call to uh, you know Volkswagen <laughs> to start coming up with a new business model that doesn't rely entirely on uh, the Chinese market, or Apple, if that doesn't wake up Apple to start finding alternatives to its supply chain besides China, then those companies are going to go the way of the dodo eventually. What's good for Apple and what's good for Volkswagen are no longer necessarily what's good for America or for Germany, respectively. So smart business leaders are right now going to be taking the signals that we're seeing and uh, hedging rapidly to ensure that their businesses can survive in a Cold War framework that features proxy wars. Just a quick question that you said this several times and neither Mark and I have pressed you on it. You keep saying Vladimir Putin is fighting a war in Ukraine that is being underwritten by Xi Jinping. What do you mean by that? Well, look at the agreement that they drew up on the 4th of February. It's clear that China had the heavy pen in that draft because you have Vladimir Putin agreeing for the first time to a lot of language that is Xi Jinping language, Xi Jinping's worldview, a community of common destiny for mankind, uh, his view of great power relations. So, so you have you have Vladimir Putin there as the supplicant. You have Vladimir Putin at disfavorable terms agreeing to finally provide the bulk of his gas supplies to China, something that Gazprom CEOs have resisted doing for a very long time. You have an agreement by Xi to sign on at the same time to some of Vladimir Putin's language. For example, this idea that NATO is a threat to global stability when it's actually a defensive alliance that uh, has maintained global stability for seven or eight decades, right? You have an agreement that we know from some of the reported intelligence leaks in our press that she had clearly known that Putin was planning to invade. They talked about the timing of an invasion. So you really have an agreement that Beijing's going to be there as the backstop, the one who's going to continue buying Russian gas, the one who is going to provide cover at the United Nations, who's going to provide propaganda support for Russia. And of course, all of that has played out exactly as that document suggested it would, all of it. And now we also have word that Beijing's considering sending uh, military supplies as well as uh, direct financial support, which is why you've had this emergency flurry of diplomacy by the national security advisor and then the president himself calling their Chinese counterparts, meeting with their Chinese counterparts. So it's clear that these two have decided to really throw in their lot with one another, with Vladimir Putin as the junior partner and with Xi Jinping clearly prepared to call in all sorts of favors from Putin when the time comes with respect to Taiwan. 
So the war in Ukraine hasn't gone as Putin planned, obviously, and his military is much less capable than he thought it was. His strategy is less effective than it was. And she obviously has to be looking at that and wondering, is my military less capable than I think it is? Have my generals been lying to me? The thing they have in common is no one comes and gives them bad news, says, I'm sorry, comrade, uh, we can't invade Taiwan. We can't invade Ukraine because our military is not capable of carrying it out and the resistance will be far greater. So has the quagmire, if we can call it that, in Ukraine for Putin bought us time with Taiwan or has it accelerated the timeline for a conflict over Taiwan? And if it has bought us time, what should we be doing with that time right now? Yeah, we don't know how much time we've got. Anyone who tells you they think they know the answer to that is full of it. I think they're full of it. I think it's entirely conceivable that he attacks Taiwan this year. It's also conceivable that he decides to wait another uh, few years until he thinks that certain other capabilities have come into place or the conditions are more optimal. We just don't know. We don't know. What we need to be doing is providing ammunition, training, and other material support to Taiwan. We need to make sure that NATO allies and other countries around the world are prepared to condemn and sanction China just the way that they have shown the willingness to sanction and condemn Russia over Russia's attack of Ukraine. Because China always makes the point that Ukraine and Taiwan are different cans of worms because the world recognizes a so-called one China principle. And therefore, China may believe that it's able to attack without technically violating the UN founding charter. We need to put in place diplomacy that is ready to respond to an outrage in the form of a Chinese invasion of a democratic neighbor. And that's going to require some creativity, but it's going to also require a lot of energy. And we need to have gotten started yesterday. Matt, especially because you are really sick. And I'm so grateful to you for sitting down and talking to us. It's fascinating. I have to say a little bit terrifying, but really, really important for us to understand this better. And that means talking more about it in the nation's capital. It means talking more about it with the press. It means talking more about it, period. And you're the right guy to do it. So thank you, notwithstanding whatever dread disease you're suffering from. Uh, whatever it is, it's it's worse than COVID. It's uh, it's it's whatever's oh, circulating at uh, the local preschool. <laughs> the revenge of of all those viruses that, that used to bother us uh, before COVID. Well, thank you so exactly. much for joining us. We really appreciate it. So, Danny, as a lot of people know, my mom fought in the Warsaw Uprising in 1944, and I took my kids to Poland for the 75th anniversary with her. And we went to the Warsaw Uprising Museum, and there's this exhibit in the museum where you go into this small theater and put on 3D glasses, and it's a 10-minute movie where you a virtual flyover over Warsaw after the uprising, and the entire city has been destroyed. Hitler gave the order to raise Warsaw to the ground. It looks like there's barely a building standing and you fly over this destruction. And my kids and I grew up thinking of this as something that happened in our grandparents' generation. And then we saw that video that President Zelensky showed in the joint meeting of Congress of the utter destruction that Russia is wreaking in Ukraine. And it was like Warsaw. It's happening now. This isn't something that happened in my parents' and my kids' grandparents' lifetime. It is happening now as we speak in Ukraine. And this portents poorly for the start of the 21st century. We thought that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. 
the 21st century is saying, hold my beer. What a great line. It's really true. Look, I watched Zelensky's speech to Congress with my children. I watched that video that he, very slick, very commercial, but a very well done video about the destruction that is being wrought by the Russians on civilian targets, on soft targets. And that has continued since Zelensky's address to Congress. They just Problem blew up a shopping mall last night. They targeted a yeah, shopping no, mall I know last it, yeah. night. The video right, is up on Twitter. Right. They've deliberately targeted schools. They've deliberately targeted residential areas. This is a war of attrition. And right now, the Russians hope that they can wear down the Ukrainians. All of us are willing to fight, as somebody very elegantly said to the last Ukrainian. And I think the one thing that we have all failed to do is to understand that this is not a fight to the last Ukrainian. This is, in fact, a fight about all of us. That's why I really, really appreciated the willingness that Matt has to lay out how all of these things are connected and how the danger of what he describes as a second Cold War. But honestly, what Matt described to me, and I asked him about this in the interview, is not a Cold War. It's an interregnum of rising tensions that leads to a hot war. It is hard to see how where the Russians are headed and where the Chinese are headed ends in anything but conflict. Am I crazy? Do you think that's nuts? I think it's possible. I don't think it's inevitable, but I think it's possible. And I think we need to take the steps necessary to make sure it doesn't happen. So if you think back to the Cold War, if this is in fact a new Cold War, as Matt suggests, then what is the strategy that won the Cold War? Because the Cold War had a lot of hot wars in it, right? I mean, as he points out, it started with the Korean War, which is a hot war. And we had a hot war in Afghanistan. There was a hot war in Nicaragua. There's a hot war in Angola. There were hot wars in a lot of places. And, you know, when Ronald Reagan came into office, I know that Reagan nostalgia is sort of verboten nowadays because people say people don't remember Ronald Reagan. Well, I remember Ronald Reagan, and it's a good time to remember him because this is how we won the Cold War. He established the Reagan Doctrine. America had just come out of the Vietnam War, and there was no appetite for sending American forces to fight wars abroad to contain communism, sort of similar to the lack of appetite post-Iraq and Afghanistan today. And so what Ronald Reagan did is he developed a strategy in which we recognized that there were people around the world, freedom fighters, who were willing to fight for their own countries, and they were willing to take up arms and defend their own countries. And all they asked of us were the weapons, the training, the intelligence, and the diplomatic support to help them succeed. And that literally brought down the Soviet Union, because in Afghanistan, we armed the Afghans with Stinger missiles and all sorts of weapons and gave them intelligence. And they literally drove the Soviet army out of Afghanistan, which was key to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, today we need the Reagan doctrine. The model's there on the shelf. We just need to pull it off. We need to help the Ukrainians defend their own country. We need to give them everything they need, not piecemeal, not putting it out every few weeks as more Ukrainians die. Now, give them the weapons so they could push back Give the Taiwanese the weapons they need to defend their country and deter China from acting. Take the steps necessary now to deter great powers from engaging in acts of aggression. And if we don't do that, then you're right, it could become World War III. But the Cold War is the best possible outcome. We should hope that we have a Cold War because Russia is not going away. China is not going away. We're going to need to contain and deter them for a long, long time. So it'll be success if we engage in a new Cold War versus a new hot war. I think the problem that I see in that sort of division that you lay out, though, Mark, is that we have needed a triggering event over the last 30, 40, 50 years. The United States has required a triggering event in order to step up to where we need to be to help the people who we need to help. The great socialization of the Cold War 
was that Americans genuinely did feel threatened with annihilation by the Soviet Union. And because they felt threatened by that annihilation, they were willing to do things in foreign policy that I think Americans are often traditionally reluctant to do. We have sort of passed into an era in which we are, again, very reluctant to do things because we don't have a great ideological enemy. And we don't understand that an enemy out there can be someone who is simply a nationalist, like Putin. But that failure, I think, that lack of a galvanizing event, I think will make it very difficult for us to get to a point where we're willing to pursue a Reagan doctrine. I think we may need a Pearl Harbor, a 9-11, and I really don't want to see that. I'm not sure that I agree with you, and I'll tell you why. Number one, I think our country has got some muscle memory from the Cold War. I think just how reflexively we've come to rally around Ukraine. Maybe the Biden administration hasn't been reflexively rallied around Ukraine, but the American people certainly have. There was a poll out that I mentioned that uh, 75% of Americans, both majorities of Republicans and Democrats, want to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine. That's an act of war. Now, I don't think everybody's thought it through all the strategic implications of it, but the inner gyroscope of the American people is pretty good on this stuff. And I think the Ukraine has been a galvanizing event in the sense that people are seeing with their own eyes what a dangerous world we're living in. And the big difference that we need to address between Cold War 1.0 and Cold War 2.0, as Matt referred to it, is in Cold War 2.0, our adversary, China, doesn't have a communist command economy that can't produce Levi's jeans. They're producing Levi's jeans for the entire world, right? Because of us, because of our catastrophic decision to engage them economically and allow them to enter the World Trade Organization and allow our economy to become dependent and intertwined with them, they've got wealth beyond anything the Soviet Union had that they can pour into their military. And they've got the entire business community in the United States that's an active lobbyist on their behalf. So it is going to be a much bigger challenge. I don't think our challenge is going to be the American people. I think our challenge is going to be bad policies that have put us in greater peril today and a business community that is now basically our lobbyists, foreign agents for the Chinese Communist Party. We've got to stop depressing our audience. I think The American people are in the right place on this. I think the isolationists have been utterly discredited in the last six months. They're on their heels. The people who want to argue for Putin and want to argue for not getting involved are watching every day as the destruction happens in Ukraine. And I think the American people are in a good place. I trust the American people to be in the right place. We just need leaders to provide good policies to lead them. Okay. How's that? There's a nice note on which to end. Optimistic. We trust the American people. We trust our listeners. Thank you, guys. Send us suggestions, comments, like the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, go to our Substack, hit the heart button. And thanks for listening. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellatai.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.